1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Josh Mendelson about his book, The Cap, How Larry Fleischer and David Stern Built the Modern NBA. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you so much for having me. Happy to be here.
1: Oh, great. Thank you for coming on. Um, Josh, I wonder if you could start off by telling us, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, so I am a uh practicing labor lawyer, um, which means I, I have worked in kind of a labor relations union circumstance. Um, and, um, you know, throughout that time, you know, one one of the reasons why I went into it in the first place and one of my biggest interests has been, um, labor relations and sports. And so when I was, uh, in, college, I studied labor relations and I I wrote my honors thesis about the history of labor relations in baseball. Um, And I clerked for the MLBPA. um, And then I uh, worked briefly for a law firm. And then I spent five years at the NLRB, um, the National Labor Relations Board. And then um, for the last six years, uh, I've worked for the Screen Actors Guild um, American Federation of Television Radio Artists as a, as a labor lawyer there. So, um, you know, that's, and and I, I, uh, I teach a course, today is actually the first class at Cardozo Law School about collective bargaining and sports and entertainment. Um, and I've also kind of operated, uh, spent a, a number of years um, as a consultant for baseball players and their agents in their. Uh, salary arbitration So um, A lot of my background Is in sports And in labor And you know That kind of Universe of stuff
1: Right um, I wanted to start With something you wrote In the acknowledgement Sections of your book Actually uh, I always find The acknowledgement Section interesting You thank U- University of Nebraska Press For a quote Buying a book From somebody Who had no business Writing a book So Josh What did you mean by that?
0: <laughs> well writing a book is really hard and journalists and writers are incredibly talented and they have tremendous experience. Uh, and while I had kind of practical experience, I, would I never written anything like that before. I had no, um, background. I mean, the, the university of Nebraska press put out Oscar Robertson's autobiography. They put out, you know, some of the best sports books that really, I mean, that some of the best sports books, uh, that, that have come out. Um, you know, they do all the all the Saber stuff, you know, so they they're an incredibly impressive uh, publishing house. And so I was very honored and proud that they were willing to put out my book.
1: <laughs> did you so did you did you write the book first and then shop it or you like sent in proposals and, and got a deal and then wrote the book?
0: So what happened was I had written a lot of it or I'd written some of it. And I. You know, I was I was basically at a point where I was like, either I'm going to really do this, or this is something that isn't really happening. And my now wife, my then girlfriend at the time, basically was like, if you, if if someone says they're going to put this out, you're going to get it done. Otherwise, it's going to sit forever, and you're never going to get it done. And so I've written a large amount of it, uh, and then I sent out proposals, and then um, it worked, and then I, I kind of <laughs> then I basically sat on it for a year, and then when my deadline came up, I finished it. Um, and also in that time I was actually in the in between the time when I sold the book and when I finished it, um, which we can get into, I, I was able to uncover a huge amount of kind of internal NBA documents, which made the book an entirely different end product than what it was when I originally had done the proposals.
1: Yeah, and I, I definitely want to get to that later on. Um, can you provide our listeners with a little background about about the state of the NBA in the 1980s?
0: Sure. So the thing that was very fun about this book is that, you know, the NBA now and the NBA then are entirely different and very much the same. And so if you look at the NBA in, in 1980 or in the late seventies or whatever it is, um, everyone knew that the future was bright, right? Everyone had faith, that, you know, everyone knew that young people like basketball. They thought it was going to be the sport of the seventies. They thought all of these things were going to happen, but it, it hadn't yet. And so the NBA was very clearly the third sport. Baseball was the national pastime. It, you know, it, it was incredibly popular. The NFL was a juggernaut on television. It, it destroyed everyone. And the NBA was this was truly the third sport um, such that, which is, is long known, but, you know, the 1980 NBA Finals were not broadcast live on television, right? I, I saw texts from the commissioner at the time, Larry O'Brien, to every team begging them, to beg their local affiliate to put the sport on TV, right? Um, the NBA season, right, started uh, uh, in the beginning of November and ended in June for two reasons. One, they moved it from the end of October to the beginning of November because they could not go up against the World Series. they would, There would be no interest. And they moved it from May to June, the finals from May to June, because that was the only way that, that there was a hope that CBS would broadcast the games live. If it was during sweeps, which is the time period where they made money, CBS would never show it live. Um, and so, so you have that circumstance. You also have a circumstance in which the NBA owners at the time and the NBA as an organization was much less organized and directly aligned as it is now. So you had a series of good <clears throat> ownerships that would cycle in and out right? So the NBA is the third sport, was not as stable as the NFL, was not as stable as baseball. And though there was hope, it was not as clear. And so you would have these these ownership groups that would cycle in and out. Um, I think there was something like, I don't remember the exact numbers. It's in the book. There was something like, you know, Every every team had cycled over two or three times in the decade between, you know, 72 and 82. I think that the Rockets and Celtics each had gone through five separate ownership groups. There was just no consistency, and because they were not as valuable and not as, as successful, they were taking in much less desirable ownership groups. So that's how Donald Sterling of uh, the Clippers got into the NBA, and we can talk a bit about that. But then you had other owners like Ted Stepien, um, who was, you know, who you know, NBA fans know as as – for the Stepien Rule, but basically trade away. Every free agent was completely incompetent. You know, we can go through all of that stuff as well. But so they had these weak ownership groups. They have weak television. Um, There were concerns about drug abuse. Um, And then you also have, uh, um, you know, the NBA, unlike baseball, which was exempted from competition, the NBA spent many, many years competing with a rival league, the ABA, the American Basketball Association. And so you had salaries that were going up by virtue of the fact that both sports had to compete with one another, um, and then <clears throat> uh, there were certain, you know, negotiating mechanisms that then continued that. So you you had this framework of, uh, and the one other thing was that the owners um, were not necessarily um, uh, open with one another um, economically. Uh, there were not the same requirements to share gate or to share information, and so bad owners or rich owners could shake could shake the league up quite tremendously. So you have kind of a um, a perfect storm of, of, um, you know, odd ownership, weak TV ratings, concerns about drugs, salaries going up uh, and, and the market should bear with the market should bear. Um, but you had all of these things kind of combining at the time that we're talking about when this book is taking place. So it's very interesting.
1: So this, that really brings us, first of all, we, I have to, I, we have to, uh circle back to Ted Stepien I, I mean I you know I, I knew a little about him as a big basketball fan but uh uh could you talk a little bit about more about him and, and maybe if you have a, if, the, if you have a favorite Ted Stepien story that you could share
0: so Ted Stepien Ted Stepien um and, and like i said the nba had to take who would buy the teams the cleveland cavaliers i think went through four owners in two months before ted stepion took over um <clears throat> there was a lot of controversy when ted stepion took over because he had not been able to break into baseball because he had made a series of anti-semitic and racist comments um and when he you know when he buys in the nba had to take who they would take and so they were willing to take him and and He comes in, you know, he he had owned a help-wanted company that would buy out the help-wanted section of every uh, uh, every newspaper in the country. He had no basketball experience. He had no understanding. But he decided that he was going to run their basketball operations. So the guy who he hires to be the GM was, um, well, actually, the first thing is his coach was a guy named Stan Albeck. A, A couple of days after he sits down with him, halfway through the meeting, Stan Albeck gets up, leaves, never coaches for him, becomes the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Stepien hires um, a guy who'd been out of basketball for four years, who only got the job because he got Billy Martin, the former manager of the Yankees, to call him and flatter him. He made him the the GM. Uh, The coach was um, Ted Stepien owned a a semi-pro softball team uh, and the GM of the semi-pro softball team became the coach (laughs) of the Cleveland Cavaliers. This is the level of incompetence that you're dealing with and then he proceeded to trade away uh I think it was draft picks for the next eight years um you know all, all of these you know really really ridiculous um things uh and and at one point you know he starts making all of these crazy trades all over the place and the NBA steps in and they say hey look you know you, you can't make can't make any trades uh unless we agree to it and Larry Brand summons him to New York and <clears throat> he meets with Ted Stepien and It seemed kind. You know, it seemed like they were kind of kind to him. And they basically, look, you can't make any more of these deals. You know, we're going to oversee it. We're going to take care of it. We're not going to make any deals unless we say so. Ted Stepien says, okay. And so the NBA league office tells the rest of the league that, you know, hey, if you're going to make a deal with the Cavaliers, you have to tell us because we can oversee it. And Ted Stepien goes nuts. And he's like, I can't believe they told anybody. This was supposed to be a secret. You know, aren't we supposed to work together? And the NBA was like, how are we supposed to, how was the rest of the league supposed to know unless we told them? Um, um, so that's, that's kind of who he was. Uh, you know, but he was so bad. Um, and I, you know, that, that some of the things that happened really happened because of him. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's a great story. There's more.
1: Yeah. Um, wow. What a character. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you detailed a lot of the, the, the kind of financial issues. Um, leading up to um, the the collective bargaining negotiations that really began in 1982. And um, perhaps the most important figure, I, I I would say unequivocally the most important figure in this book is Larry Fleischer. I wonder if you could talk about him a little bit.
0: Sure. Um, so <clears throat> Larry, Fleischer, Larry Fleischer has been totally forgotten by history, and I have no idea why. And one of the most interesting parts of this book is that there's this incredibly influential, creative, brilliant, um, fascinating figure in sports business, sports history, who's been totally forgot, right? So Lionel Fletcher was the head of the NBPA from the early 1960s into the late 1980s. Um, for, for people who've, you know, who like the baseball uh, labor history, he was Marvin Miller's counterpart in the NBA. Um, and he was a a... A brilliant guy. He was incredibly creative, terribly creative. Um, uh, uh, And he was he was both, you know, he he didn't have a tremendous labor background before he took over. I mean, if you won a union for 25 years, you become a labor leader. Uh, He was. Um, But he also was incredibly creative and thoughtful. And he was also a CPA and an accountant. So when you, for anybody who likes kind of front office machinations or any aspect of, you know, Daryl Morey's brilliant for doing X or, you know, Sam Presti is brilliant for doing Y, in this time period, it was happening on the player side. And Larry Fleischer was doing all of it. Um, so every aspect of, of what was happening in terms of the development of, of, of kind of the NBA economic structure was, was really done by Fleischer. Um, and so he had this kind of brilliant business economic side, but he was also apparently a man of incredible integrity and credibility, such that he had the, he had tremendous respect from the owners, but he had tremendous respect from, from the players. You know, guys who have who have who deserve infinite respect. Guys like Oscar Robertson, um, who spoke at his funeral. Bill Bradley, um, loved Larry Fleischer. He called him his, his big brother. He spoke he, he enshrined he him in the Hall of Fame. Um Larry Fleischer was also an agent. He was also by far the most successful agent, which, you know, or one of the most successful agents during his time period, um, which had its own issues. But he was tremendously well regarded and well respected. And so he was this, you know, he's just an incredible figure. He's fascinating. He's brilliant. He was decent. And he was ungodly effective on behalf of the players, um, which, and it's just been totally forgotten or lost. Or or swallowed up or whatever it is. I think it's because he died young. He died in 1988, um, and I think that you know, you know, the first chapter of the book is called "No Final Victories" because time moves on, and you know, there's a lot of talk about legacy, but people always, you know, people tend to forget. So um, I kind of gave you a very long-winded description of Fletcher, but he he is certainly a fascinating, brilliant, creative figure, and and crucial, absolutely crucial to. Um, a lot of the the protections and benefits that players enjoy, and to the economic system as it exists, I, I don't think um, someone else would have been able to achieve as much as he did, uh, or in the same way.
1: Yeah, no, that that was a great explanation, and and I th- and um, you know I love the the comparison to Marvin Miller because uh, Marvin Miller is uh, such a well known figure in the history of baseball, and um, and I, I have to admit personally uh, as a, a huge fan of the history of basketball myself i i knew very little of larry fleischer i i knew the name that was the extent of it um and so it's one of the great things about this book i think it really filled a need in in you know the history of the game um so we get to 1982 and um you, you know you you described a lot of the financial troubles that the league was facing uh Owner turnover, the rising salaries, etc. Um, can you kind of briefly describe, you know, the nature? Let me put it this way: what What were the two sides looking for heading into those historic negotiations in 1982? What, did, what were the owners? What were the owners' biggest concern, and what were the players' biggest concern? So, uh,
0: the let, let me start with the players. <clears throat> the players wanted nothing. The players were fine with the system as it existed, um, and and um, <clears throat> without going into excruciating detail, um, basically they, they had negotiated a, a settlement with the NBA in the mid-1970s to settle the Oscar Robertson case, which was a gigantic antitrust lawsuit. The NBA is an unlawful monopoly, um, which many people may not understand but it is uh, and so um, when they settled that they basically had a a 10 year settlement of uh, you know phase in of, of of rules and rights and all that kind of stuff escalating in the players favor and there was expected to be free agency in 1987 there's more to it than that but that's the basic point so when they entered negotiations in 1982 they said we don't need anything right if there was one thing that the players would have wanted right is they wanted um, a guaranteed percentage of television revenues. So the other thing about Larry Fleischer is that Larry Fleischer um, had vision of where the NBA was going. And he was right. So Larry Fleischer saw saw the future of the NBA in television, in international growth, and all of those types of things. He saw all of this in the early, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And, what you know, the only thing that he wanted, or one of the things that he wanted was, the main thing that he wanted was a percentage of television revenues. And he had been going after it since, the early 1970s. I talked about it a bit, which I, and by the way, Paul, I didn't know any of this stuff either. So I, I, I loved, I love baseball too. I love Marvin Miller. Meeting Marvin Miller was one of the great experiences of my life. I revered oh, him. Wow. He's a hero. He was awesome. Um, I didn't know anything about Fleischer. And then the more I read about him, the more I found him to be absolutely incredible. And, he, you know, but, but, <clears throat> sorry, so I'm, I'm getting off track, but the thing that the players wanted was a percentage of television revenues. Um, and they'd gone through, you know, and, 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 um, you know, they'd sued for them in the late 1970s, an incredibly clever maneuver that the owners were very, very frightened of and then made a deal on. Um, and that was one thing he wanted. The owners wanted a salary cap, right? They wanted a hard limitation on salary, right? Um, they wanted to say, each team is going to get paid X, This and, and this is what you're going to get, and that's it. And... Um, the other thing, that I, the fun part about the book that I was able to get was all of their internal machinations, right? So, I, you know, what we have is we have all of these memos from the late 70s and then really from beginning negotiations in 82, 83, where it's like a constitutional convention, where all of these different people in basketball um, are coming up with different ideas of how things can go or how they can come up with an economic structure. And some of these are coming from people like Stan Kasten, right, who at the time was the president. Of, or the GM of the Atlanta Hawks, I believe is now the president of the Dodgers, um, and he was with the Nationals for a long period of time. You know. There's also stuff coming from the owner of the San Antonio Spurs, a guy named Angelo Drossos, um, who we go into a bit in the book, who had the original idea for a salary cap. Um, and then you also have an idea which came from the NFLPA, which was the players getting a percentage of gross, right? Um, kind of a profit-sharing deal. And so those are kind of the ideas that are fluctuating among ownership. As you're entering into negotiations, um, you kind of had one group which kind of recognized that look, if we're going to get the players to ever agree to this, we're going to have to guarantee them stuff. We're going to have to do this or that, you know, all these different kinds of things. And then you had know, a hardline group who said, "Hard cap, you know, no way around it." Um, but that, those were kind of the the avenues that both sides were coming into entering negotiations. Right. Um, I wanted
1: to ask you also about. Uh, well, I, I want to ask you, you know. You talk obviously a lot about the 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 economics of the league in the book and and the economic situations of individual teams, and that was a huge issue because a lot of the, you know the teams argued that they were losing money. Many of them were losing money, and you know uh, Fleischer had a, a different take on that to an extent. Um, I want to ask you: Do you think if they had not reached an agreement on a salary cap, that teams would have been forced to fold?
0: I don't know. Um... My guess is no. Um, look, there there is a a, a a a belief that they would have. You know, it goes both ways. It's not entirely clear. Um, you you know, you had real teams that were in real trouble, and 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 part of what I was able to see was their internal economics. Like, you really had a couple of teams. You had old ABA teams who were really in trouble because when the NBA and the ABA merged, it was like the end of world war one. It was like the treaty of Versailles. They wanted to make it hurt. And so they, they had, you know, they, they exacted huge uh, amounts of money from these teams. They were in trouble. The ABA was on life support to begin with. And then you had a series of really bad owners, right? You have Step in, you have Sterling. You also have the Indiana Pacers, you have Utah, you have Denver. And so it's not, you know, it's, there was a real danger of it. Um, you know, it, it's not clear how imminent it was. The owners used it as a negotiating tactic. Um, one of the things that, the, you know, the day, you know, and we can talk about this in a bit, but like, you know, at, at, kind of at the, at the crescendo of negotiations, the owners convened this committee of, of five teams to talk about, you know, um, moving franchise or consolidating franchises. And they were very big in the press. They were very public about how bad it was. And so, you know, and I went through Larry O'Brien's papers, and you go through these files, and these files have tons of documents in it, and the file covering this committee, which met the day before negotiations, had a file. There were no documents in it. So I think that there was a very, very clear concern. Um, The players admitted the teams were losing money. Whether or not they would fold, the reality of the circumstance is that you can tell me, I'm not aware of a team folding in any of the major sports since ABA teams in the early 1970s. I'm not aware of an NBA team right. folding in the last 45 years. So I don't really believe that. I think that they would have stepped in to stop it. Um, you know, I mean, and I talk about this in the book, and you know, when they started negotiations, David Stern makes this whole speech, and one of his things is, well, we're losing money, but we'll stay open in spite of our losses. Who knows? You know, I, I tend to discount... Um, Claims of how everything's falling apart. I, I don't. I don't be, You know. I don't know it. Part of what the players did get when they reached a deal was a guarantee of jobs, and that was a part of it. So I think that there was some concern. You know, and more than some, considerable concern. Um, but I, I don't. You know, I, I think it's a, a negotiating framework. So I, I can't really. I can't really tell. But
1: sure. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up David Stern. Um, he, he was kind of, uh, Fleischer's main antagonist, um, throughout these negotiations. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, people know, most people know later David Stern, the, you know, the, of course, as commissioner, but what was David Stern's role in the league at that point and his role in the negotiations specifically?
0: Sure. So, um, yeah, this is kind of the, the prequel David Stern kind of before, you know, the, the. Patrick Ewing draft and getting booed at the draft and all of that type of stuff that we're all very familiar with. Um, yeah, so I mean, basically, Stern <clears throat> Stern was uh, worked for the the um, the NBA's outside counsel, Roscow Rose, for many years, and he jumped on the business in in the mid nineteen sixties. And he was a, a a litigator. He he was one of the the NBA's main lawyers in the Oscar Robertson case. Um, their outside counsel, you know, and and, uh, like I said in the book, you know, where the NBA tried to kind of harass players. It was David Stern's signature who was on many of the, um, uh, many of the, the, the subpoenas that went to players, you know, asking for all kinds of information. But he also had a really expansive role. The NBA you know, the NBA didn't have a full-time lawyer until the mid-1970s. You know, like I said, David Stern, you know, when Larry O'Brien when, when took over as commissioner in 1976 or 1975, I forgot the exact year, someone will correct me, but, um, you know, he met with each one of the departments and someone had to write up the general counsel's role. There was no general counsel for the NBA, but David Stern was the one who wrote it up. So, you know, and he was doing all kinds of stuff. He was, you know, he was negotiating their television contracts. He was doing all kinds of things well beyond what a traditional outside counsel would do. Um, and you know he kind of became Lyra O'Brien's consigliere. Um, that's what he was called. And then he, he uh, the NBA hired him uh, when when O'Brien took over. He hired um, Stern. Um, and and the other thing is Stern was also heavily involved um, in the economics of the NBA. So you know in in when they're settling the Oscar Robertson case, it's David Stern who's writing the memo to the NBA. He still has their outside counsel about different types of mechanisms that they could put in place, whether that's you know. The right of first refusal of what became restricted free agency or compensation or any one of or the draft or all of these different things. It's David Stern who's doing that. You know, in, in the late 1970s, and early 1980s, when ABA teams are in trouble, it's David Stern who's who's writing those memos to the commissioner. But then, you know, as in I believe it was 1980, he assumed a new role, um, which was the executive vice president of business and legal affairs. And so he was not only their lawyer, but he was also moving into the business side. And, you know, in, when you look at what Stern is doing. Stern wanted to professionalize the NBA. Um, you know, the NBA at that time, you know, w- was, um, uh, you know, like I talk about, there was some of the hijinks in terms of ownership. But you know, huge things. You know, they 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 didn't have licensing deals. They didn't have uniform agreements um, in terms of how to broadcast games or cable. David Stern was negotiating with cable providers in <clears throat> in the nineteen seventies. He was negotiating with with ESPN in the late nineteen seventies. And his memos were referring to it as ESP uh, because no one knew what to call it. He was calling it ESP. Uh, he reached a deal to basically uh, uh, share highlights with ESPN. Uh, they would cut the highlights in exchange for you know some kind of broadcasting deal. Um, so he he saw the future of that. He saw the future in um, international work as well. And he was also taking a very minute view of what should happen in the NBA. So you know he would write a memo at each all at every All Star break and say I didn't like the way. The Miller Highlight uh, Highlife, you know, booth was at this point. He would keep track of the commercials that were being aired uh, on their their deal uh, on TV. He would. It uh, 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 was one of the things, a, a train of thought that I. Oh, he he was also making sure that you know he was working um, with the Board of Governors to make sure that they would have um, standard kind of timeouts. Right, so that the TV timeouts would be consistent to ensure they were maximizing uh, uh, revenue coming in. So he was both a, a, a litigator, but then he built into more of a business role. And so by '82, when he's entering into this negotiation, he's the chief negotiator for the NBA. Um, this is the first time in collective bargaining. You know, we all know Stern. You know, we all know Stern from the lockouts. We all know Easy Dave. We know the Stern lockout beard. But in 1982 was the first time. Or at least I do. Maybe other people do. Um, I do. I follow this stuff pretty closely. But he, he was... 82 was the first time when he was really the chief negotiator uh, for the NBA um, in collective bargaining with the union. And it was also the only time in the history of the NBA that I'm aware... Outside of, I guess, 88 when he negotiated with Fleischer as well. But Fleischer was the only person who we ever negotiated with who had more experience in the NBA than he did. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I wanna, I want
1: to... To set the scene a little further, I would like to discuss another factor I think that was at play in these negotiations, and that's what was going on with the other two uh, major professional sports leagues at that time: Major League Baseball and the NFL. Um, It seemed like you know the the three leagues, in a way, followed a similar trajectory, just in terms of you know the establishment of of their unions, some of the progress that was made. In in certain ways, they appeared to be tied together in in this labor movement. Um, What was going on with the uh, the NFL and Major League Baseball at this time, you know, 1981,
0: 1982. Sure. So <clears throat> you're right, right? Um, and I didn't deal with the NHL because the NHL had issues with legal issues where there were issues with um, fraud and all kinds. So I didn't deal with that. But baseball, the NBA, and the NFL... You know, there's kind of a belief now that the circumstances that exist in sports were preordained, and and what exists would always have existed no matter what, and that's absolutely untrue. Um, what you had, and you had baseball, the NBA, and the NFL, was you had three different player side and three different owner side, and in each instance, they approached it a bit differently, and the outcome was a bit different, right? So in baseball, you had Marvin Miller, um, and and um, and and you're right in the framework where the development over time. Um, was similar, right? They were these these teams and leagues were uh, the unions were established in the 60s. They started to make progress. Um, they all kind of uh, achieved some version of free agency in the in the mid to late 1970s, and then the early 1980s is a time period where the owners are striking back, and and how those parties interacted with one another w- was was different and really depended on the personalities on both sides, right? So in baseball, you have Marvin Miller. Um, who is a hero and remains a hero and should be a hero, uh, who came to Major League Baseball from the Steelworkers Union. He was a trade unionist. He had worked in unions for years. He uh, uh, and and what he did right was he built a a union, a trade union, uh, the best that he could find. Right. He educated his members. Uh, he negotiated. He you know that he did the the the, the, the he was a master. Uh, trade unionists, and that was what he built. And he was dealing with people on the other side, who um, were terribly unprepared, did not have labor people. Bowie Kuhn was not a labor person, and they made a series of uh, underestimating the players. Uh, they were arrogant, um, you know. They they were um, patronizing, and they underestimated the players. And so the, the you know, <clears throat> and, and and by virtue of both the circumstances and 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 that the players, um, it was an incredibly toxic relationship. Um, because the owners were so dismissive um, and they were dealing with real professionals in, in Marvin Miller and, and Dick Moss, who was his general counsel. Um, and so by the, you know, they had achieved free agency, um, but a lot of the things, you know, it was an incredibly toxic relationship. Um, the NFL, on the other hand, you had, you had um, <clears throat> uh, a framework where um, you had a less experienced leader, a guy named Ed Garvey, who was absolutely brilliant, um, but was a young guy um, a little bit more political. Um, and part of what they did was, you know, he kind of, I, I don't want to be terribly critical because I, I don't want to be unfair because it, it's easy with hindsight, but he kind of took them out on strike in 1974, kind of un, unaware, you know, they kind of settled, um, they had one free agency in the courts and they ended up, uh, settling it, um, to kind of uh, get a due structure in order to get money coming in because of some of the outlays that the union had made, they were kind of a bit overextended. And so they kind of were, were um, a tick behind. Um, and so they didn't have the solidarity that, that Marv Miller had cultivated. They were not in the same strong economic framework um, that, that MLB was in. And part of the other issue was is that um, major, the major league baseball players were independently financed through the group licensing program. So they were not as dependent on dues as the NFL was, which made the NFL weaker. Um, and and so there was a solidarity issue where, the, where there was real um, some distrust among players. Not distrust but not not absolute solidarity behind Ed Garvey in the NFL, the way there was behind Miller uh, in baseball and Fleischer in the NBA. Meanwhile in Fleischer you have, right, Ryan Fleischer had absolute buy-in from the players. He had their absolute faith Um, by virtue of the fact that he had delivered for them for 25 years, tremendously effectively in a way that no one expected. Um, And two, many of the players had had come up in the fight, right? So by the early 1980s, okay, maybe the Oscar Roberts and Tommy Heinsohn generation was gone, but they had moved that on to to Paul Silas uh, and then Paul Silas to Bob Lanier. And one of the things that Fletcher did by virtue of being an agent, and then also he believed in running the union from the top down, he wanted to make sure that he had Heavy buy-in and heavy involvement from the stars. So when you look at and, and and part of the thing that that was so impressive about what he did was he had buy-in when you and I go through this in the book, right? Bob Lanier was the president of the union, right? Junior Bridgman, um, you know, but then you also had Kareem Abdul Jabbar was a player rep, um, Jack Sikma was a player rep, David Thompson was a player rep, uh, Alex English was a player rep. Um, you know, uh, the Lakers were, were very involved. And even when, when they called the strike date, right? Larry Bird um, says if the league goes under, it goes under. The players line up behind Fleischer, um, which gave him tremendous power and authority, right? Um, and so then you also had the circumstance in which, on the NBA side, they were not as toxic. They, they worked with the union. They dealt with them. They didn't try to hide. It was an adversarial relationship. It was an arm's length relationship. But it was, it was not the same thing. Sorry, I got a call. But um, it was not the same level of animosity as existed in baseball. There was, you know, when, when the, in the early 80s, when the NBA was trying to figure out ways to, to build on their league, they included Fleischer. They would work with Fleischer. In baseball, that would never happen. And so all of those things, right, and I gave you a a tremendous amount of background, but in the early, you know, when they were entering negotiations in 1982, like I said, the players had all achieved free agency in the mid-1970s. And so in 1981, you have the baseball players going out on strike uh, because the owners underestimated them and they wanted to limit the free agency that they had. Um, in the fall of 1982, you have the NFL players going out on strike uh, because Ed Garvey was moving away from free agency, trying to achieve a percentage of gross, basically the revenue share that exists in the NBA. Um, and they go out on strike. And so even though you have a better relationship in the NBA, um, that is a, that all of those wins are swirling around these negotiations when Stern and Fleischer are getting into it. So it's kind of a perfect storm of you have, you know, a a, a powerful union led by a longstanding, effective, respected leader who has credibility with ownership um, and with his constituents. You also have a an up and coming negotiator, David Stern, who is trying to solidify a business at a time of economic concern. Um, while you have larger trends economically in sport, um, that are, that are saying we're going to have a war here. Right. And so that's kind of the framework that they're dealing with in these negotiations, um, you know, because of what's going on in the other sports as well. So all of that plays into it too.
1: Right. So, you know, the, the league was in a position of strength. They, uh, as you said, Fleischer had tremendous buy-in from, from the players. Um, they were coming off of the Oscar Robertson case, uh, which guaranteed free agency. Um, and so you know, I know initially um, and, and then the NBA presented this creative salary cap solution um, and initially you know it was a non-starter for Fleischer. understandably he wouldn't want to put a cap on what his players could earn but ultimately he 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 came around and was willing to to work with a salary cap. so I wonder if you could talk about what what changed why Fleischer was then willing to to work with a salary cap.
0: Sure. So yeah. So I mean, initially when they first made the proposal, Fleischer said no. Uh, he said no way. He said we had the Robertson case. This is never going to hold up. You know, we're not going to agree to this. The owners had proposed a basic. You know, uh, we'll find the average salary, the, the whatever it was over the last last year, divide that by the number of teams. That's what every team can spend. Hard cap, <laughs> right? And so Flesher said no. And then they went to court. And then <clears throat> Without getting into, and I go through all the machinations in the book, basically, financial wins, right? And the judge says, you can't enforce this unless um, the union agrees. And the other thing that happens is that um, the owners are saying, we're running out of money, we're running out of money. Um, Moses Malone, who was the best player in the NBA, was a free agent. No team was signing him. Around the same time, you know, the, the Philadelphia 76ers signed him to a gigantic contract. And then other players are signing. And so the idea that the league is totally in trouble also goes out the window. So the owners come back in the middle of October, and they pull the salary cap They take it off the table, and they replace it with a whole bunch of really, frankly, ridiculous proposals, right? They say, we want to cut the rosters to 10 from from 12, which doesn't, you know, I mean, I I think it was – Dr. Jack Ramsay at the Blazers is like, "How are we supposed to scrimmage if we have ten players?" Right? They wanted every player to fly coach. How are you going to ask a seven foot three player to fly coach in nineteen eighty two? Right? They wanted twenty five percent of every player's um, uh, sneaker income. All of these different things. That, you know, they, they basically said, "Okay, we're going to take this off the table, and now we're going to hammer you on a series of you know revenue moving proposals, basically." And <clears throat> Uh, and and I asked, I asked everybody who was involved on the player side. No one knew, um, and I think I know why. But Fletcher then comes back about a week later, and he says, he says, "Okay, we'll we'll talk about." He calls it the big item, right, which is a salary cap. We'll talk about it under a series of conditions. One, um, he wanted to make sure that uh, the players were guaranteed a percentage of revenue, including TV. Two, he wanted to make sure that even the smallest market teams would have to spend. So he wanted to make sure that the teams that were falling apart, Cleveland, uh, uh, Indiana, uh, 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 the Clippers, that they would have to spend as well, so that it wouldn't be a circumstance in which it would only be a limit on the top and not the bottom. And three, he wanted to make sure that the, both the numbers were high enough, that the um, players would make a lot of money, and two, he wanted to make sure that free agency would continue, and that and that was kind of what um, what became some of the exceptions, right? And he, he uh, we could talk about that too. He framed it brilliantly. Um, he, you know when he would when he would talk about what the exceptions should be he would frame them in ways that the owners would want to agree to, right? So he would say, okay, what let's say you have Larry Bird, right? And you want you know surely the Celtics are going to re-sign Larry Bird, so. You know, we have to create an exception for if a player wants to resign their best player, right? And because um, he was a CPA and an accountant, right, he would attack these loopholes. So basically what – he could have gone down the table of negotiating over those kind of bad proposals. Maybe they come off the table. Maybe they don't. Maybe it leads to a strike. Maybe it doesn't. And there still might have been a strike under the circumstance where they ended up. But I think the bet that he made – and I think that – if you can't you can't gauge what they did then based on what happened now. Because the deal that they agreed to didn't have a luxury tax. It didn't have a maximum salary. It didn't have a rookie wage scale. It had a Swiss cheese style um, salary cap, but we can get into that in a bit. But basically what Fisher wanted was he wanted a guaranteed percentage of revenue, including television, because he thought there was a future there. He wanted to guarantee that the lower market teams would have to spend, that they wouldn't be able to do – You know, they wouldn't be able to say, well, we have no money, we can't spend. They would have to spend. In fact, he wanted the salary cap to be the same for all teams. Um, And then three, he wanted to make sure that it would be high enough so free agency would exist and that there would be all of these exceptions, such that if you had Larry Bird, you could sign Larry Bird to whatever you want. If you had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was going to retire, this was the end of his career, you would be able to sign a player to replace him so that your team wouldn't be bad. And three, he wanted to make sure that if you were a rookie, right, if you were drafting, they called it Ralph Sampson, but let's say now Zion, right, or, you know, um, LeBron or whoever it is, that you could sign them to a a higher amount as well, too. And so that was kind of the framework um, that that he was willing to agree to. And that was really the framework that they ended
1: up. at. Yeah, essentially, you know, we often use the terms hard cap and soft cap. And and he, as you described brilliantly, uh, you know, explained the reasons why we needed a soft cap. And it sounds like that was that really helped get it done. Um, So there's this point in in the winter of 1983 where uh, the two sides basically, I mean, you know, they didn't exactly reach a deal but they were there was a meeting of the minds in a way you know that okay both sides are you know we can make the salary cap thing work um we're not so far apart anymore we are getting, you know larry bryan issued statements he was optimistic about a deal and then things kind of fell apart um at which point the players uh issued a strike date which and i love i love the the little anecdote that it was uh It it was initially set for April 1st, but they changed it to April 2nd because (laughs) they didn't want people to think it was an April Fool's joke, which is just fantastic. Um, So why did, first of all, do you think the players would have gone ahead and and went on strike?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, You know, I I asked around that question. Um, Yes, I do. Um, That's what I was told. Um, So I, I do. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, even just based on the quotes that you include That's in the book, the it, it, it seems like there was tremendous solidarity there. Yes, um,
0: from from all across the from all across the spectrum. I mean, the one thing, <clears throat> and we can talk about it in a bit. One of the things that I tried to do in the book was to talk about some of this stuff through the lens of what's happening in the basketball world, right? So part of this is that you know you have the the Lakers and you have the Sixers and you have the Celtics and you have all of these teams that are vying for a championship. And you know, the, the Sixers are. are the Sixers had been in the finals three times in the previous six years, right? They hadn't won a title. Dr. J hadn't won a title in the NBA. Um, they go and they sign Moses, you know, and they're just destroying the league. And there's going to be a strike to take the ball out of out of, out of, the, out of the Sixers' hands. The biggest issue for Flesher was the Sixers. And while I am a union lawyer and I believe in solidarity, I am sympathetic to – I tried to paint it as sympathetic – of what of where the Sixers were and what the concerns were why why they were more hesitant than maybe you know another team would have been. But yes, I do yeah. think they were going to to go on
1: strike. Yeah, no, I hear you, Matt. I you know I grew up a huge Yankees fan, and uh, and 1994, of course, was was the lockout, and uh, I'm sorry, it was a strike, strike. not yeah, a lockout. strike. And and I was devastated because you know as 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 a Yankee fan of a certain age you know throughout the most of the the, the mid late eighties early nineties they weren't very good uh, weren't as good as the Mets and, and weren't real contenders and then finally in ninety four they had the best record in baseball and I was devastated you know and and I'm sure the play I'm sure you know Donnie baseball uh, who you know waited his whole career for this moment must have been crushed that he Absolutely. had to that he had to strike at that time. And I think another good point that you know you kind of touched upon was that we often just uh, break them into two camps of owners and players, and you know uh, you did a good job of, of, of explaining and, and demonstrating that there are that there are variations within those camps that you know not just contender, not just teams that were contending, but the, the small market teams like like the Cleveland and Indiana that were in serious financial trouble have have much different concerns than you know, the Knicks and the Lakers, for example. And of course, on the player side, you have, you know, Moses Malone and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar want to get as much money as they possible. Everybody wants to get as much money as they possibly can, but, th- but their concerns are different than that 12th man who is, you know, trying to get as high of a minimum contract as he can. and And even in this situation is facing the possibility of having his roster spot cut. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not always, you know, as simple as just owners vs. players. There's, there's a lot going on there within within the two sides themselves.
0: Yes, and and I will say the one other thing on that. You know, the one thing that, that um, <laughs> the scene and, and and I go through a bit. You know, there were you know, there were owners who were pulling aside players and threatening them. You know, the way that they stood up. You know, I talked about when when the owner of the of the Sonics flies into Seattle and uh, you know basically tells them that you know I'm telling you as a friend that if you if you go on strike, I think, he, I think he said it was going to be a holocaust. I think he used that word. And, uh, you know, Jack Sikma sitting there being like, no way. You know, the way that the players stood up was incredibly impressive. And I love the story about the, the Sixers meeting, right, where this is a team that wants to win a title, and the owner desperately wants to win a title, and the players desperately want to win a title, but they're still kind of advocating for their position respectfully with one another. It's a really, you know, it's, it's a difficult dynamic. These are still people going to work. With all of these things swirling around. Um, so, yeah, there, there are all kinds of different, you know, right. And, constituencies. And, and, and
1: right. started to cut you off, but and, – and, and then on, the, on that Sixers front, which really hit home to me, was that there was a sense that um, – and I can't think of the Sixers owner's name right now. Um, Harold Katz. Harold Katz. There was a sense that – you know, for lack of a better, he was a decent man and that he had a, a strong relationship with his players and to an extent sympathize with their, with their cause. And and that was a very interesting dynamic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's not all one-to-one. It's not all a circumstance in which, you know, um, so it, 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 it was, you know, it was a different, it, you know, look, the, were there aspects of it were that, you know, yeah, the owner of the Spurs was incredibly aggressive. And players seemed to be intimidated. I mean, I went through a bit about that, where he basically was like, I'm going to keep all your stuff and you're going to have to sue me for it. And even though that wouldn't hold up, you know, Fleischer basically sent him a letter being like, everything you're saying is unlawful. Uh, and Fleischer was right. What he was doing was unlawful. Um, you know, and and, and and so different, you know, and then you had other people who were, who were staying quiet. You know, different different players and different ownership groups and different circumstances approached it, approached it differently. Um, but I do think that both sides... Did a good job of, of keeping their constituencies together. Because um, the one other thing I will say is that these were very good people on both sides. Both the both Stern and his folks and Fleischer and the union were, were very good at what they were doing. Um, and so they were they were uh, advocating for their clients. They were advocating for their groups. But they were they were good at it, um, which I think is important. And that's not always the case.
1: Yeah. Um, so. As I said, we we had that April second was set as the strike date, and really, you know, kind of at the eleventh hour, um, uh, they 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 reached a deal. Uh, what what was the turning point there? What 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 eventually got it done?
0: Well, well, the the, one, the other thing that I'll add, which we've not touched on yet, which is part of the uh, the the broader kind of um, you know kind of uh, folklore of this negotiation, was that the owners opened the books um, for the first time in sports, probably before or ever. Uh, the owners really opened the books and the players spent, you know, They took a break in negotiations for months for the players to review it. Um, and, you know, Stern's quote, which I think is a great one is, it didn't make sense to keep fighting about what the truth was um, because they were in trouble. It was real. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of, you know, uh, someone going on, you know, someone saying we're running out of money and it's not real. Cause you know, they said they did that every, every owner and every employer, in every negotiation, says when is, is, is is. I've been in these negotiations. It's what happens, um, and so they, they opened up the books, and so you know the strike date happens. You know they're, they're kind of getting down to it, and basically they thought they were very close to a deal. There was there was some you know kind of explosions in the press. The owners stormed out. The players stormed out, and at the very end, they think they're close to a deal. Um, the owners all uh, Stern gets all the owners to fly in from all over the country. And they walk into a meeting, and <clears throat> I, I go through this a bit more in the book. Angelo Derosa was the owner of the Spurs. Uh, he had a particularly fiery relationship with Fleischer. Um, he was not a blue blood, wealthy guy. Um, he had been a hustler. He had, you know, he had uh, he ran a bar. He was a boxing promoter. He ran a hot dog stand. He only became an NBA owner because he was an NBA owner, and you know, he he had a very fiery relationship with the union. And he convinced the owners the day before to drastically decrease their proposal. And so, you know, about a week before the strike day, I think it was the 24th, they sit down, Fleischer thinks they have a deal. The owners come in and they cut everything in half. And, they, you know, they, they, they cut the, the minimum, they cut the amount of, of money that would go to the players, they cut all of these things. And the players go ballistic and they storm out. And everyone is very negative. Everyone thinks there's going to be a strike. Everyone thinks they're done. And the owners kind of come back. uh, Sorry, I got a a phone call again. Um, Can you hear me? Is everything okay still? Yeah. Okay. Um, And so the owners come back and and Stern kind of – what I heard from the inside was that uh, the owners were embarrassed and they kind of work out the last batch of um, kind of money issues on both sides. Uh, My understanding was that the players wanted – uh, they originally were they originally were at 57%. They came down to 55, and they were willing to agree to 53. The owners were kind of pushing back, and basically what they ended up doing was maneuvering around some amount of parking revenue, such that the owners could save place, the players could say they got 53% of revenue, um, and they got to they got to a deal on the day of the strike. Uh, you know, Larry O'Brien kind of gives a speech at the Waldorf Astoria, basically saying did the players get everything that they wanted? No. Did the owners get everything they wanted? No. But is this something that we can live with? Yes. And uh, Fleischer basically has a quote that says uh, that Bob had, had written, to, the Bob Lanier was the president of the union. And he had written two, letter, uh, two speeches, one to say how magnanimous everybody was in reaching an agreement, and the other that the war was on. Uh, okay. It really came down to the last minute. Um, you know, there are telexes that owners are flying in. And, you know, there's uh, <clears throat> a Bryan Brian is saying, when you get to the Waldorf, check in with Gary Bettman uh, <laughs> to find out what's going on. Uh, and that was, you know, and they ended up reaching a deal um and the deal was the players got 53 percent of revenue uh real, they ended up getting uh tv um uh tv and anything that came forth uh owners had to act in good faith to maximize revenue that was language that was in there which i saw as an attorney i thought that'd be smart uh and then they also had all of these exceptions they had the Larry Bird exception to, so players could resign uh they had the players who retire all these different things um that they got um and they guaranteed the uh uh you know, the jobs for a few years. Um, and that was kind of where it ended up. Um, and so at the last minute they were able to reach a deal. But one other thing that I will say, which goes to the relationship piece is that when the, and you didn't ask me about this, but I'm going to answer it, which is that we talked a bit about the relationship in baseball. And even when the players went on strike in 81 and when they reached a deal, there was no warmth. They hated each other. The, the, the owner for the, the negotiator for the owners, um, was hated by the players, and and, and at a press conference, Marvin Miller wouldn't shake his hand. And the uh, negotiator seeks out Rusty Staub. I don't remember if he was there on the Mets or the Expos, Um, but he seeks him out thinking he was a friendly face because when they were in negotiations, he would look at him. Rusty Staub says, I'm not your friend. I'm never your friend. You know, I might have said I hate you. I don't really remember. In the NBA, when they reached an agreement, they they were handshaking. There was magnanimity because they had worked together. Um, and I'm not, I'm not being critical of Marvin Miller or the players in any way. I'm being critical of the owners in baseball. I'm not being critical of the PA. Marvin Miller was fantastic. Um, I'm just saying that the nature of how the NBA approached labor relations differently and it allowed them to achieve better um, results because there was more trust. Uh, and I think that, that was all – in order to reach a deal like this, you had to trust one another or at least have mechanisms by which you thought you could trust one another. Um, and I think that's part of why this deal was made.
1: Right. Um, so here we are thirty thirty eight 38 years later. Well, wow. um, and, and we still have the seller cap in place. Um, you touched on it before that, you know, that there have been several, uh, substantive changes to the seller cap. Of course, we've had several new collective bargaining agreements since then. We've had a couple of work stoppages. Uh, I wonder if you could just touch upon a few of the major, um, changes to the salary cap, you know, major additions, I guess, uh, in the, in the years since it was first implemented?
0: Well, um, there are a number of them. Um, the big ones that I'm aware of for the most part benefited, uh, ownership. Um, there was the, uh, uh, rookie wage scale, which didn't exist. And by the way, when, when Fisher agreed to the salary cap in 83, he believed it to be temporary. Um, He negotiated one more deal in 88, um, where they continued it, um, and he then increased the percentages that went to players, and he decreased the rounds in the driver, and and he achieved, um, uh, for the first time, totally uh, uh, uncompensated free agency, um, which did not exist in any other sport and was freer than than what existed in baseball. Um, But since then, yeah, there's there's the rookie wage scale, there's the luxury tax, um, there's the escrow, there's all of these... um, uh, you know all of these things that exist. I mean, I think I think that um, in the early years there were all of these loopholes that they were able to um, uh, capitalize on, and now there's much less of that. Um, so it, over the years, and by virtue, it, it has become um, less, less in some ways, less player friendly. Um, you know, the number of years that a player can sign. You know, there used to be no limit. Now I think it's four or five. If, if your own player, you know that type of stuff. The max contract, right. all those types of things,
1: were things right, that, that the were not. In, contract, yeah. yeah,
0: all of that stuff. Um, we're not was not a part of, of the original agreement, or, or what Fleischer agreed
1: to. Right. So, you, as, as you just noted, Fleischer didn't intend, you know, intended the salary cap really to be a temporary thing. And um, I was struck in the in the introduction to your book, you state that you believe there should no longer be a salary cap in the NBA. Um, so, why do you feel that way?
0: Well, I mean, no, I, I, I do not think that there's any need for it. Uh, the, you know, I think that there's a logic to um, what they negotiated. Um, you have really, really smart front offices. You have really creative front offices. You have a group of people who are able to quantify and maximize and figure out really interesting ways to build a team. It's an artificial restriction. Why on earth? Shouldn't players be paid what the market will bear in the same way that you or I would? Um, These are businesses Uh, if they didn't deem it to be, you know, I I, I love when I hear the term player empowerment Um, when a player simply wishes to go from one place to another and then have a salary that's dictated by somebody else where different markets can't compete with one another. So, you know, I I think that, that, you know, the salary cap exists to some degree as, as, as training wheels to an industry that no longer needs it. Um, And I think that there could be really creative and interesting ways for teams to build without it. Do I think that's likely to happen? No, I don't think that that's likely to happen. I think that, um, you know, I I think that it's possible. I think there are ways you can do it or whatever it is. But uh, there's no, you know, the NBA is not going to fall apart if there's no salary cap. Right. I I defy someone to show me otherwise.
1: Yeah, no, it'd be interesting to see. You know the Sam Prestes of the world operate in a, in a. It's it's almost as if he does operate in a, in a world without a salary cap, right? I mean, he it, he's. With it was fascinating. Team. Look, yeah.
0: you know, one of the, one of the things that I found when I looked at the old, because um, teams can't compete, right? The only thing that, that that everyone can offer James Harden is the exact same amount of money, except for the team he was in. Khrisna Jabbar could program two nights at the Forum. He could pick the bands who were going to play at the Forum <laughs> two nights a year. That was part of his contract, right? There were aspects of Moses Malone's contract with the Sixers that were based on attendance. You could do so many creative, interesting things to entice a player to come to your market. You could do all kinds of interesting things to make your team, you know, and every time, you know, everyone everyone thinks that kind of the things that happen now, you know, never existed before. There have always been clever people coming up with interesting ways. To build their franchises and to build their teams, and wouldn't you rather see a team do that? You know, uh, is really the most interesting way convincing a, a, a second round draft pick to take a, a four year deal at the minimum, and then using that surplus to negotiate with somebody else. You know, are there more interesting ways that we could build our franchises that like are, are more fun than that? That would be my thought, but you know, uh, that's my view.
1: So yeah, it's it's definitely fun to think about. Uh, along those lines, do you think there should be a draft?
0: I should no, no. <laughs> I mean, look, there is a draft. I love the draft. You know, I mean, I, I, I vividly remember, you know, Chris Webber being traded on draft night, being in summer camp, and that being like the biggest deal of my life. Uh, the draft is a tremendous amount of fun. It's, 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 it's interesting. You know, I, I don't really, you know. Uh, I don't really, I don't think it's necessary. I think that there, I, I think that there are other ways in which you can do it. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, look, the other thing that I will say is part of the thing in this book is that the draft is an anti-competitive, it's, 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 it's in many ways, you know, anti-competitive and, 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 and um, you know, it's an unlawful distribution of, 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 of labor. It doesn't, it shouldn't exist. There's no, you know, there's no reason why it should be distributed that way, and it's not, dis, you know, it's it, it, it's not distributed based on territory or anything like that. So, no, I don't think that there's, uh, I don't think that there's any need for a draft. I don't think the draft is going anywhere,
1: but there's right. no need for it. Yeah. Um, well, Josh, I've taken enough of your time. I just, I, I have one last question I ask. Uh, I'd like to ask all of my guests. well um, first, let me just say again, Josh's book is called. The Cap, how Larry Fleischer and David Stern built the modern NBA. Um, and I think you can tell from our conversation today that it, there's just some fascinating stuff in there about the history of the league, about labor negotiations, um, about some very interesting personalities, Larry Fleischer, Ted Stepien, Donald Sterling, who we really didn't get into. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, as, as a basketball, as a fan of the history of the game, I, I learned a great deal. So I highly recommend this book. Um, my final question for you, Josh is what is your all time favorite sports book?
0: all time favorite sports book. Uh, can I, can I tie? Um, sure. It would have to be the Lords of the realm in baseball, which is about kind of the economic history of, of baseball, which I, my book is not as good as the Lords of the realm, but it was a tremendous, uh, inspiration. And the other, which I assume is quite obvious uh, is uh, the Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam. Um, mm-hmm. David Halberstam is is David Halberstam has somehow written my favorite basketball book, my favorite history book, <laughs> my favorite everything book, and so uh, those are my two favorites. I guess they're probably not the most. Uh, I guess they're probably pretty standard, but those are my two favorites.
1: Well, I I don't know. I I haven't I haven't read Lords of the Realm. Uh, I've I've certainly read Halberstam's book. Uh, several of Halberstam's book. I mean, he was just he was brilliant, and that yeah. that book is you know, for an NBA fan is is a must read. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll have to check out Lords of the Realm. It's awesome. Um, all right, Josh. Well, once again, the book is called The Cap. How Larry Fleischer and David Stern built the modern NBA. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Best of luck with the book.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: All right. Take care. Take care.